When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Game of Thrones actor Kit Harington stars in Testament of Youth, the powerful story of love, war, and remembrance based on the First World War memoir by Vera Britton. It's now playing on demand. Also on demand is Meadowland, starring Luke Wilson and Olivia Wilde as a couple who come unhinged in the devastating aftermath of an unimaginable loss. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on cable. The Art House is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting, streaming video unit. I'm Allison Wilmore. And I'm Matt Singer. In this episode, Allison and I look at a possible future for the film industry as we discuss Netflix's first venture into original scripted movies, Beasts of No Nation. Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, where we recommend some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all featuring a common theme. And since Beasts of No Nation is set in an unnamed African country, we thought we'd use this podcast to look at Hollywood's long and sometimes uncomfortable history of using unnamed or invented countries. But then I realized that would give Matt another opportunity to talk about Jim Cotta, which is set in the fictional and somewhat delicious sounding country of Parmistan, mm-hmm. in which all foreigners are forced to go through an obstacle course slash trial by combat in exchange for a wish, which is as good an approach to foreign policy as any, I guess. You're damn right it is. But I could not allow that. Uh, so you'll have to look back at episode number 52 for Matt's thoughts on Jim Cotta, because instead we're going to be talking about movies and TV shows set in Africa. But first up, it's opening break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight a few notable films new on demand on cable. Matt, what are our picks this time? Our first pick is a film called Jim Cotta, so the joke's on you, Allison. No, <laughs> unfortunately, that's not the case. We do have three uh, very good or very intriguing sounding titles uh, this week. The first one is a movie I'm really looking forward to seeing. It was the closing night film at Fantastic Fest this year, and unfortunately... I wasn't able to stay till the end of the festival to watch it, but I heard really good things about it. And I've seen really positive reviews for the movie now that it's it's coming out on VOD. It is called Bone Tomahawk. It's directed by S. Craig Mahler. And this is available now on VOD. Has an awesome cast with Kurt Russell, Patrick Wilson, Matthew Fox, Sid Haig, Richard Jenkins, and one of Allison's favorite actors, David Arquette. People don't realize that, but she, uh, I, you have near, a ta- near and dear to my heart. I thought it was a little excessive when you had the tattoo of his face put on your arm, but you haven't regretted it yet. I, I mean, he's made I, I solid nothing. Yeah, he's yeah. made one solid choice after another. This film, I'll read you the plot description. Uh, four men set out in the Wild West to rescue a group of captives from cannibalistic cave dwellers. And as it's been described to me, it is sort of a very kind of traditional Western as it begins, but then it slowly kind of mutates into. More of, I guess, a horror film. Civilized towns. You look a man direct in the face when you talk to him. This isn't comfortable. It's not supposed to be. (laughs) 
Here's the uh, situation. Serious. Mrs. O'Dwyer was abducted. She is my everything, and those savages have got her. God knows what they're doing to her. Every second that we delay. You know who did this? I don't have a name. How many of them do you think there are? It won't matter. You have no chance against any number of them. I'm, I'm coming with you. No, no, I need you here. And this is what a backup's for, to help an emergency, not stay back. I'm coming. We're making a five-day journey in three days, riding along and sleeping the bare minimum. I don't know what's west of here. No cattle trail or anything else goes in that direction. If our horses die before we get there, when we go into hostile territory, weak and foggy with exhaustion, we won't rescue anybody. And I've heard that it's got a, a really nice script, smartly written, and that it's uh, supposedly has some really awesome gore and stuff like that if you're into it. So this is one I'm really looking forward to checking out. Sounds like a perfect Halloween uh, movie to watch if you are listening to this before Halloween, which is we're recording this the week before. So I think that would be a good one. That's something that I probably will be watching this week. That is Bone Tomahawk, available now on VOD. Our next pick is another film that would actually be good for uh, your Halloween viewership. This is one I have seen. It is called The Vatican Tapes. It is also available now on VOD, and it's directed by one of my favorite filmmakers, or one half of one of my favorite filmmakers, I guess you could say. That would be Mark Neville Dean making, I believe, his first solo feature film as a director. So no Taylor. Did they did they break up? What happened? Uh, no, they sort of, they've decided, they're, they're sort of, they were like... They're taking a break? Not really, yeah, they're on a break. They're on a break. <laughs> um, I, 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 I actually interviewed Mark Neville Dean about this movie, and he was saying that they totally have projects they want to do together in the future, including, hopefully, if everything works out, a third Crank film, which would be wonderful. But that, you know, I think he specifically, he being Neville Dean, wanted to st- stretch himself a little bit all of their stuff before has been kind of action movies, you know, grindhousey, exploitationy, and this is much more of a straight horror film. He wanted to kind of do something different, and it, it it's a, it's an exorcism movie. Uh, the plot description is: a priest and two Vatican exorcists must do battle with an ancient satanic force to save the soul of a young woman. Michael Pena and Jaimon Hunsu and Doug Ray Scott all in this movie. And look, it is not a masterpiece. It's not a crank film. Um, the best things, <laughs> the best things about it are, I think, Mark Neveldine's di- directing. When you really recognize his directorial stamp, there are some of those shots, those running shots. Those uh, he shoots them with roll. He gets on rollerblades and uses the camera himself. There are some moments in the movie that kind of where the exorcism, ghosty stuff, kind of gets really freaked out and crazy, and he goes into that. Neville Dean style uh, photography, which I love. Those are the highlights. And actually, the movie has a really fun ending without spoiling where it goes. Uh, You know, it's sort of a a formula exorcism movie, but by the end of it, it kind of it it shifts just actually kind of like Bone Tomahawk, as it's described. It sort of starts as one movie and it shifts a little bit into another movie. And that was the stuff that I enjoyed the most as well. So a solid uh, recommendation from me. Nothing exceptional. But if you are a fan of Neville Dean and Taylor, I, I, as I am, and you're a completionist as I am, this is one you, you definitely want to check out. That's The Vatican Tapes, available now on VOD. And finally, available on October 30th, is another film I've seen some positive reviews of that I'm also looking to check out. It's called Nasty Baby. 
Directed by Sebastian Silva. I'll read you the plot description of this one. An award-winning festival favorite by Sebastian Silva, Nasty Baby, centers on Freddie, played by Silva, a Brooklyn-based artist who, with his boyfriend Mo and their best friend Polly, played by Kristen Wiig, is trying to have a baby. As this trio deals with the complications of conception and creating the new normal family, their bliss is clouded by a series of confrontations with an annoying neighbor who just might be a madman. Sounds like a very relatable New York story, actually. It sounds like a story I've uh, lived through at parts of. So, yeah, Nasty Baby. That's another one I'm looking forward to. Have you seen that one, Allison? I have not. I, I saw Crystal Fairy, which was, uh, I think... By, also by the same yes, filmmaker. Yes, by the same filmmaker, which I, I thought was very good. Yes, I've heard good things about that one as well. So this is one I'm looking forward to checking out. Nasty Baby, available on VOD on October 30th. What are you doing here? Who is responsible for this thing? Now, what are they calling you? Agu! Agu! I saved your life. I saved your life. I saved your life. Go! All of you that have seen your family killed, you now have something that stands for you. It has put the weapons of this war back in your hands of you, the young, the powerful. I'm a good follower, sir. I will always protect you because you are my son. On every episode of Film Spotting SVU, we let you choose what our next main review will be by voting on one of three streaming options. And this time around, we gave you three streaming originals, all from pretty established names in the film world, which is kind of a testament to how the industry is changing and how many people are looking towards streaming originals. Uh, the first option was Beasts of No Nation, which is Netflix's first original fiction film directed by Carrie Fukunaga of Sin Nombre and Jane Eyre and the first season of True Detective. The second option was Junoon, which is the making of a Johnny Greenwood album documentary that Paul Thomas Anderson shot in India and that is now on Mubi. And the third option was Red Oaks, which is the Amazon original comedy series executive produced by Steven Soderbergh and co-created by his regular collaborator, Gregory Jacobs, who directed Magic Mike XXL. And Beast of No Nation became the runaway winner, though for a while, Junoon made a valiant showing. <laughs> Beast of No Nation is based on a novel by Nigerian author Uzerdinma Iweala, and it is about an 11-year-old boy named Agu, played by newcomer Abraham Atta, who lives in an unnamed West African country in the middle of a civil war. Agu and his family have been living lives of relative normalcy in a buffer zone until soldiers arrive and his family members either flee or are killed. He runs away into the forest, where he's forcibly conscripted into service with a group of rebel fighters headed up by the Commandant, who is played by Idris Elba. And the Commandant is this figure who's somewhere between paternal, a cult leader, an abusive tyrant. And under his sway, Agu becomes a child soldier, killing and battling for a cause that's never very clear. Matt, this one was directed by Kerry Fukunaga, who's became, who became most famous for some very virtuoso visuals in True Detective Season 1, including this elaborate six-minute tracking shot in the fourth episode that became very talked about. And here in this film, he serves as his own cinematographer, um, 
And for a film that, as much as it is about gruelingly dark subject matter, has these moments of hallucinatory beauty, is there a kind of fundamental contradiction here that the first Netflix movie is one that aims for visuals that are so grandly cinematic? Uh, That's a good question, and it's one that I was wrestling with as I watched it. When I saw it, uh, I did not watch this on Netflix. I went to a press screening in a, a small screening room. And one of the things that really struck me about this movie that I was so fascinated by was that even though it's – I mean I guess Netflix technically didn't produce it. I've had people correct me about that. But they the purchased op- it, They right? purchased it. Yes. But the opening title card says a Netflix presentation of a Netflix original production. So it's a Netflix movie on some level. And what I found so interesting is that uh, this movie, I don't think – I could be wrong. But I don't think this movie is going to play all that well on Netflix. I think its its virtues are ones that are best appreciated in a movie theater, including that gorgeous cinematography, uh, including the sound design, which I thought was very powerful in terms of like literally viscerally powerful. The way that the the sounds of of, of war, the gunshots, the explosions. Maybe I was just in a theater with the sound turned way up, but I found uh, that that they were jolting, like that the gunshots and the explosions, they they, they were so sort of intense in the sound mix that they were really putting you in the position of uh, someone who's, you know, a small boy who's not, you know, who's not familiar with these these sounds and is genuinely terrified by them. I mean, it, it... you really felt the terror of bullets and explosions whizzing by your head and, and things like that. And then just the subject matter, which is so dark and so intense. And, you know, I'm just imagining people sitting at home on their couch on a Friday night, opening up their Netflix on their Roku or their Apple TV or whatever it is, going, all right, honey, what should we watch? And then putting on this movie, which is two hours and 20 minutes of just very dark, intense subject matter. And I'm really wondering if people are going to sit through this on their couch where the urge to check their phone or check their uh, iPad or or look away, it's all there. You know what I mean? That it's – to me, this is a movie that – I didn't love it, and we can talk about the reasons why. But I think that it has very strong virtues, and it's a movie that should be seen – and wrestled with, but it's the kind of thing you kind of need to be locked, uh, locked in a room with that you can't, so that you you don't have any sort of excuse to look away or or take a break or or anything like that. That's what I found so interesting about it. Yeah, I mm, I don't know how what to think about how if dark material is received better or worse on Netflix. I it that makes sense to me logically that it is the kind of subject matter that sounds very difficult and that people might shy away from given this wealth of options of other kind of things that go down easier that are right right there on your streaming on your streaming service that said people have been very willing to put up with you know we've done other podcasts where we've talked about the kind of slowness and sometimes darkness of netflix original series that is true and that people stick with them in ways that i think you know often surprise me that's fair and, I, and look, they they have they're like the most algorithmic uh, sure, company in the world. Sure, but as you said, this was not something developed by algorithm. You well, know, but they picked they it pay, up. Sure, but I mean, I think that this was clearly paid for so that they can theoretically win their first Oscar. Ah, I see. I think I mean that I, that just seems very. You think that that trumped everything else? Well, I think that they invested in a movie that they thought seemed Oscary, and right. certainly this it certainly movie does seems Oscary. Yes, yes. Uh, and I, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a terrible thing. I, no. you know, this is a movie that is, is difficult and ambitious. Um, 
but I don't know. I, I, I wonder if there is, I wonder if it plays better. It certainly did not do well in theaters. This was the first, uh, you know, their first right. attempt to also put something, release something in small theaters Day simultaneously right. with putting it on Netflix and people did not necessarily run to the theaters but then again this is the kind of movie that might that might not have happened with anyway even if it weren't competing with being available in most people's homes that's very true i'm looking at a box office figure right now it's wikipedia we all know how reliable that is but right now the the box office that's listed there is sixty four thousand dollars, which is not good and not good at all you know even and even for a movie that's day and date you know but then again a typical day and date means i'm either going to pay uh Twelve dollars to see it in a theater, or I'm going to pay eight dollars, seven dollars to see it at home. Here with Netflix, if you wanted to watch it, if you already pay for Netflix, you don't have to pay anything. So it's a slightly different situation, but absolutely, it's not. It's certainly not a example where you'd say, "Boy, this is a success. We've got to keep releasing more movies like this." You have to have to figure that uh, that the only reason that Netflix at this point would keep doing this is, as you said, to qualify for awards. Right. Right. So this, do you think that this movie rises above being kind of like Oscar bait? Not in this, like, I mean, it only got one big star in it. Everyone right. else is uh, an African actor. Uh, the, the lead is a newcomer, is a first-time right. actor. Um, do you think that this kind of rises above being just like dutifully difficult? Yeah, I, yeah, for the most part, yes. And I think, I mean, I, the, the the most awardsy element of it, you would have to say, is probably Idris Elba's performance. Very showy, and it's the sort of role that tends to get Oscar attention and wouldn't surprise me and wouldn't upset me in the slightest if he did get nominated for a Best Supporting Actor award. I think he's excellent in the movie. He's, he is excellent, yeah. He's, he's, he's one of those villains, you know, like... Uh, like uh, the Daniel Day-Lewis character in Gangs of New York, the sort of character who you despise, but and yet is so charismatic that you understand why people follow him, and you're sort of both drawn to him and repulsed by him in equal measure. And you're also almost, you get a sense of what he looks like through the eyes of this young protagonist. Yes. And so he looms larger than life, and he kind of falls in this grand way as well throughout mm-hmm. over the course of the film. Mm-hmm. And I think it's impressive to have that reflected in a performance. Right. Uh, so yeah, so in terms of its you know awardsiness, I think it's most awardsy if we can invent a, a word huh. in his performance, and I think on that level it's it's really successful. I mean, the things that we I didn't love about this movie, which we can get into, are you know you mentioned how it's not set in a specific country, and or at least it's not named the specific country, and uh, to go along with that, the sort of participants in the war or the civil disputes that are going on here they're never really made clear either there's a lot of acronyms some of which are explained some of which maybe aren't ever described who these different factions are and i think all of that is certainly by design and it's supposed to sort of evoke the fact that this is about this little boy agu who's sort of caught in the middle of this and doesn't really understand uh, all of the participants in this war. He's just caught up in this machine. And I thought that that really worked to a point in the beginning of the movie, which is very much focalized through his point of view. But I thought as the movie went on, we kind of lose his perspective, or at least it's diminished, I thought. And it's more about, there are scenes where the Idris Elba character kind of gets a larger role, becomes almost the main character. And if Agu is even present, he's a, he's just sort of standing in a corner somewhere. And I just thought the more that the movie tries to make it about the conflict without actually getting into the specifics, the weaker it got. 
right? When that it's it's sort of halfway between an impressionistic portrait and a sort of docudrama, right? And I thought that it, it, the balance that it struck just didn't really work for me in that sense. Yeah, I can see that, and I, I think I I I would agree. I think that the way this works best is as this, as you said, impressionist portrait of basically it's experiential. It's about yes. being a child soldier. And it's about, I think, in it, at its most effective points, it is about the ways in which when you're young, your reality is especially malleable. Mm-hmm. You know, it starts off very kind of like fondly and warmly portraying this family and the ways in which they have this great dynamic. And it doesn't take very long for this character to be doing something like completely like apocalyptically different yes to be like killing someone with like a machete and to be walking through a house in one of the kind of very showy shots like this long take in which he and the other soldiers break into a mansion and it follows him through as they just like destroy things and do horrible horrible things and and i think that the movie very effectively shows the way in which this new normal just kind of takes hold mm-hmm. you know and suddenly it's as if there was never that that family and that normalcy before you know there is only ever this terrible like life in which they just keep fighting and fighting right and you know taking battles where you don't know you don't really understand what they're trying to do you don't understand the nature of the conflict and i think that that didn't bother me until yeah i think when it starts raising it starts spending more time with adults who do know what the conflict is about. Right. And you're like, then, then it's it just seems being coy. Kind of deliberately coy. vague. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and there is a tradition of doing this with like uh, Claire Denis' White Material is another movie that is set in a very deliberately in a generic kind of African country. And, it, it, and it's a movie that I liked a lot, but that aspect bothered me because I don't like the suggestion that there is such a thing as a generic African conflict. Right. Is not a good one. No. You know, that they are interchangeable. In some way. And I, I haven't seen the recent film War Witch, but mm-hmm. I was told that also does the same thing. Uh, and I think that if you're going to make this be a child's eye point of view of atrocity, which this very effectively does for a while, yeah. then, yeah, then kind of hold to that. Right. I, that's, I mean, we're, yeah, we're on the same page. I mean, the, the, a lot of the early scenes have this narration from agu's perspective which like fades in occasionally through like later but right but it seems to va- it almost yeah. completely vanishes for long stretches in that portion that you're describing where yeah. he be- he kind of fades into the background and you could say I-, I think you know you could argue if you thought the movie was more effective than i did that well i mean he's essentially being brainwashed right by right. this character so he essentially if, if we're hearing his thoughts it's almost as if he's kind of he has no thoughts of his own anymore, right? Yeah. Which you could probably argue, you know, uh, in favor of the movie in that way. But when this movie is from his perspective and you, you are really – you want – as you said, he goes to this pl- this horrible place. And to, it's, uh, to the movie's credit that it doesn't try to make him, you know, sort of a – oh, you know, like reluctant or – in some way, try to make him, I don't know, more positive or something like that to, to downplay. It doesn't soften his role exactly. at all. He doesn't yes. soften what he's doing. And I think that's the movie's credit. But I, I, I wanted to feel more of what was going on inside his head in those moments. And I don't really think the movie does an effective job of doing that after a certain point mm. that it just that it does. It kind of it, it uses him almost at a certain point to just get into the Idris Elba's character's story. And I, I thought it was much more effective as as this experiential thing. What is going on in this boy's head? What is he seeing? What is he feeling? 
And when there was a certain point where I couldn't really tell what he was feeling, that was where the movie kind of lost me. And then at the end, it sort of got me again a little bit because, it again, it finds him again. It, it picks up. There's this very evocative sequence, another kind of long take where he's walking through these trenches with this sort of very symbolic kind of red, bloody-looking walls and, and murky water. And, I mean, it's a very sort of powerful image and shot it, it says everything you need to say without him talking but that's a scene where we start to hear him talking again and i found that sequence very powerful as well but i just yeah i i you know it's not a home run this movie to me it's it's like a solid double it's got some very powerful and affecting moments but i i it didn't it didn't you know grab me all the way yeah i don't I, I didn't feel quite the same way you did that i i had lost track of his mm-hmm. his kind of like internal journey later in the movie until like the movie kind of has scenes that he is not in but uh, I do think that in general that this movie for all that it is very experiential it kind of kept me at arm's length I think it is very there's a lot of it's very thoughtfully planned but I think that it, it never kind of has any sense of like I don't know, emotional abandon or kind of like, you know, that it's it, it seems a little cerebral in how it approaches the subject matter. Mm. That said, I think some of those shots in the middle, the one you mentioned towards that's kind of closer towards the end where he's walking in the trenches. Yeah. The one in which he there there's this kind of montage of oh not quite montage, but it doesn't it doesn't all line up where he uh they've just attacked this town it all bleeds red yeah the, which is the, like a beautiful sequence the color basically like kind of shift the whole screen kind of shifts in color yes to this bloody sort of red, red. all the everything that was previously kind of brown and, yeah. and earth colored now becomes red. red and that scene cuts to like them in a truck and then he jumps off and it doesn't match he's somewhere else yeah and there's this scene of which he and his friends and other boys are like laughing while in the background someone is getting executed and i like this there's like the total nightmarishness of these sequences and the ways in which they bleed together there's not there's this the the visual logic is like it doesn't quite all mesh i think is like phenomenal like i thought that sequence was great the the first sequence in which you see the the kind of the soldiers mm-hmm. and there was something almost lost boys look like about yeah, them. Yeah. You know, absolutely. I, they're really like some images in this, I think are really phenomenal. Right. Just, but again, a lot of it, I feel like is stuff that, I mean, like I said, we haven't watched, I haven't watched it on Netflix, but I'm curious how much you appreciate it looking at it on your TV or God forbid on your, you know, on your iPad or your phone. It's like, I mean, I went through and rewatched some of the middle. Yeah. yeah. And it still looked good. And it still looked really good. Yeah. It did. And I do I think, you know, the music, which is by Dan Romer, and it's this very kind of like, it, it like demands a sense of kind of grandeur. You know, it's this like very like swelling kind of, I don't know, sad like score. And and I, I think that though, especially that like middle sequence, I, I it works really well for me. Yeah. The- I don't think it entirely holds it together, but yeah. Yeah. I, and it's, look, I, I think it's a, it's a solid movie. I don't think it's a exceptional movie, but I do give, you know, Netflix a lot of credit because as we we said earlier, like this is not something that an algorithm would spit out as this is what what a mass, you know, audience is going to want to see on Netflix. Like whether they did it to get an award or not, I think and whether or not the movie is wholly successful, I think it's the sort of movie that it's exciting to see 
a, a any studio, any company taking a chance on. We need more movies like this, right? Whether or not this movie is 100% perfectly executed, this is the kind of movie I like to see that's challenging, that's interesting, that's bold visually. It's taking some chances, right? Maybe all the chances don't pan out, but this is exciting. You know, I, I would hope that Netflix uh, keeps making movies at least not necessarily like this, but just with this sense of adventure or boldness or you know fearlessness in terms of tone and 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 plot and because like i said this doesn't strike me as the kind of thing that people are desperate to watch on uh netflix on on anything really like it's a tough movie you know so uh you know i know that there's a lot of articles about not necessarily right now but in general like when when netflix talks about algorithms people you know bemoan the fact that you know what what are they going to end up making? Just, you know, pablum that's going to, you know, be boring and, you know, garbage that's just going to, you know, for the masses or whatever. And that's certainly not this. So that's to me is, a, is an encouraging sign no matter what. Sure. They're also making a group of movies with Adam Sandler. And, and you know, full, Fuller House. Yeah. This is true. I, but that's fine. And and that's think, fine. Exactly. I, I mean, I think. If that allows them to also make this, that's a good thing. Sure. I, and I, I don't think it breaks down that simple. I, I, I have more faith in people's willingness to watch things that are outside of I have no faith the like the things that go down super easy I do I well, think actually uh, I'm always I'm always I'm often pleasantly surprised by what people seem willing to try out on right. streaming well look they didn't go see it in theaters but I don't we of course Netflix we doesn't we'll never tell get numbers us what, on how, how this is done right so uh, but we have a we have a, a a test market who's listening to us right now I'd love to hear from people you know write us let us know did you watch it did you watch the whole thing did you you know did you turn it off did it did it uh, was it too challenging was it too dark um, or was it, you know, did you enjoy it? I'd love to, uh, this is, this is what you guys are here for us for. So please write us SVU at filmspotting SVU. Tell us what you thought. Am I, am I wrong? Am I too being too cynical? I'd love to be, I'd love to have my faith in humanity restored by a movie as dark as Beasts of No Nation. That would be a lovely little twist on the whole thing. As dark and as beautiful. Um, that is Beasts of No Nation and it is currently streaming on Netflix. <laughs> So our Q shot subject films. I, I don't want to say African films because, uh, well, I guess one of mine is definitely an African film. One would technically be a probably I guess Italian film, but it's set in Africa. Um, and I wanted, I would have loved to have gone sort of more into African films. The problem is a lot of them are hard to find. You know. Well, the other thing I was going to say, uh, I, I mean, well, the thing I was going to say about this is that. There are African films on on streaming, actually. Like, Netflix has a whole section of African movies, plenty of which are, I mean, it's not enormous, but it has a whole selection of Nollywood films. And Africa has, uh, Nigeria has a huge, prolific homegrown movie industry of these films that are, like, widely watched locally. And they have local stars, but they're largely unknown beyond African audiences and kind of African immigrant audiences. Um, and I... Th- I have tried to watch them before. They kind of tend towards being these broad melodramas and kind of morality plays that I found like pretty inaccessible. They're 
they're very tailored towards a local or towards a, they're very tailored towards an African audience. And I think that's part of the reason why they have not kind of been exported widely beyond that. And they don't really need to be. They do totally fine as is. Um, but you can check those out um, if you can find the African movies subcategory on Netflix. And Netflix doesn't always make it easy for you to access the subcategories. There are a whole bunch of recent Nollywood films on there. Yeah, but I, I like I know, for example, I was I would as you know what I always like to use whatever subject we're doing as an excuse to catch up with somebody, something that I haven't seen. And I ended up doing that, too. But like my first thought was, well, I've never seen a film by Usmane Sembene, who's supposedly one of the great African filmmakers of all time. I couldn't find any of the, his sort of best movies on even to rent, you know, on Amazon. So that certainly affected my choices. I don't know. Is there anything else you wanted to say in a general sense? Well, I mean, in that in that as well, you know, there's um, Abdurrahman Sissiko, who's like one of the other great, like, and I, I think I've mentioned Timbuktu, which mm-hmm. is currently streaming on Amazon Prime and is great and worth checking out. But there are really, there are like maybe five African filmmakers who've kind of made it onto the festival circuit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in that case, then also you have, it's, I, I think, as is the case, I think, with, other regions you have filmmakers who make movies who make films that end up at festivals and that don't get watched locally right and then you have films that are made locally that get watched by the crowds and there's this divide between the two yeah so i don't know i mean it's it's i i would like to see what streaming would do to to kind of more more african you know film product and if that ever kind of manages to develop the sort of audiences that say like Korean dramas have mm-hmm. on streaming. If yeah. they, you know, if there's that kind of, if, if it's possible to open it up that way. Yeah. I, I, you, you worry that it seems like Netflix in particular is sort of less and less interested in sort of right. movies and especially these sorts of movies that are much more of a niche product. And they're, you know, they're moving more and more into TV, 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 that this is the sort of, this is the sort of category movie that tends to, kind of fade away into the background or, or be dropped at all completely. Right. Or, I mean, they're, they're very good. dependent on some licensing agency being able to be right. like, here's a bunch. And they might get those recent deal. movies like a right. Timbuktu. But if you're looking at some, you know, like the masterpieces of world cinema from 20 years ago, those can be very hard to find. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to go first with your first pick? Sure. I'll go first. Uh, I was, I, the other thing I wanted to say before I get into this is that, it is true that the majority of films that are set in Africa that make it to U.S. screens are not made by Africans, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but that doesn't mean there aren't many films being made in Africa. So I did want to pick one that was that was made by an African filmmaker, and one that really I think goes against so many of the films that are about Africa that come to the U.S. are like *Beasts of No Nation* about conflict in Africa and about kind of suffering in Africa. Mm. Uh, so uh, *Viva Riva*, which is available for rent exclamation point at the end of that it's a terrible title for a, a terribly fun crime drama which is directed by joe tunda wamunga who is a um i think he's from the congo uh, it's his directorial debut the film is set in kinshasa which is in the democratic republic of the congo and it is this like really grimy sexy dark crime drama uh that's set during a fuel sort shortage in kinshasa where there's no gas anywhere and the main character rolls back into town after 10 years away uh, with a stolen a truck full of stolen gas that he intends to make money off of by selling you know when the, the prices keep skyrocketing 
and his name is Riva, um, played by Pasha Bey, and he is this wheeler dealer character who also is like has terrible impulse control and I, one of the pleasures of this movie is that he is this guy who loves to live large and to kind of like show up with a wad of cash and to make terrible decisions in terms of falling in love with the mistress of the local crime lord and and doesn't seem all that bothered about planning or having an end goal and uh you know it like enjoys kind of trouble too much and uh, is like a very charismatic performance by Bay, and there's a very other charismatic performance by uh, Manie Malone, who plays Nora, the kind of the the gangsters gangsters girl who he ends up hooking up with. They have a scene in which they hook up through the bars of a window that is. Uh, it may it was like of a level that it made me surprised that it was given a pass for U.S. theaters. Um, and I was very proud of it. But there is this kind of nihilistic edge to the whole affair. Like, there's no... Riva has no plan in place, He other than kind of, like, selling off this... He, he's not someone with this idea that he's going to then manage to move his way up through the ladder of, of Kinshasa. He just wants a lot of money to kind of spend. At, at one point, someone yells like or kind of accuses him of saying drink and fornicate a whole life's ambition it does seem to be his whole life's ambition but this movie is like very slick looking which is the thing i think is a barrier to a lot of the other a lot of those kind of local or those nigerian films that have ended up they don't necessarily look up to our typical standards for like a hollywood production but viva riva definitely does and it manages to basically transplant this like go for broke B movie into this fascinating location and to make the location part of the story and to sometimes have it go. I mean, in terms of the fuel short shortage, it's uh, it's certainly very interesting in that. But also in terms of just like the way the city works and the power keeps going off uh, and the ways in which all of that interferes with this crime story. Uh, it is terrific fun, and it's a movie that I don't think got that much attention when it was in theaters a few years ago. Um, it got a release by Music Box Films. It's available for rent now, and I think is really worth a look just for how kind of different this the the world in which it's set looks, and how well a kind of fairly standard crime drama story can play by being put in this new location. Um, so that is Viva Riva, and it is available for rent. That's one I haven't seen, um, but it sounds great. I've heard great things about it. And it's funny, as you're describing it, it was reminding me a lot of a movie I wasn't planning on recommending here, but I'll just throw in very briefly. It was a film that I saw at Fantastic Fest this year called Hard to Get, and it's a South African crime film. And not a great movie, but it has a ton of style. Uh, it's directed by this very young guy. I think he's now 25, so he was like 23 when he made it, which is just so depressing. Uh, Zee Natuli is his name, and very clearly super talented, a guy who has a lot of promise and, and could go on to do some really exciting things. And the two leads, Palance Deladla and uh, Thisaway Zikubu, they are so unbelievably sexy together. It's sort of this Bonnie and Clyde-ish kind of uh, – or, or gun-crazy kind of lovers, crime lovers on the run movie. They are so hot together, frankly, that it's a lot – it's great. It's a lot of fun. And you could see 
all three of those people, the director and the two stars, both going on to big careers. I could see all of those people winding up making, you know, if not Hollywood movies, then big movies that play here and, and get a lot of attention. So, yeah, and it's fun because it's uh, it, it certainly evokes crime and gangster movies we know, but it's in this milieu of South Africa that we don't know all that well. So that's another one people could look out for. I mean, I, I don't know that it has a distributor here that it'll ever play here at all, but if it shows up... One to look for. Add it to your, I don't know, add it somewhere. Write it down. Hard to get. It At this point, is hard to get, <laughs> but perhaps someday it will be less hard to get. Anyway, uh, my first pick. Now, you, you, it was funny because you mentioned before you talked about Viva Riva how so many movies uh, about Africa tend to be violent. They're about conflicts, and they depict this, this, uh, this sort of one side of Africa. And while I didn't necessarily plan it this way, after hearing you say this, I have wound up with two films like Beasts of No Nation, <laughs> that do involve kind of ordinary people who are caught up in politically motivated violence as these different factions are kind of fighting for control of a, of a government. But I will say one is a docudrama that is so realistic that it's been kind of used almost as like a how-to guide by nationalist movements around the world. The other, though, is a raucous comedy about a Bushman on a trek to dispose of a Coke bottle that he thinks comes from the gods. Uh, let's start with that first, I guess. That is The Gods Must Be Crazy. It's directed by Jamie Hughes. It's available for rent. The film was made in 1980. I watched it on Amazon. And the reason I chose this one is because it was one of the first movies that came to mind when Allison suggested this topic of African films or films set in Africa. And the reason that it was one of the first ones that came to mind is I have vivid memories of members of my family talking about this movie when I was a kid, passing a VHS copy back and forth. And I'm sure I'm exaggerating the memory in my mind, but I just remember my uncles like talking about this movie and laughing about it, that it was so funny. And while I'm sure for some reason, I don't know why that's stuck in my mind. And it's probably, like I said, it's, it's, it's importance is exaggerated in my memories, but this was a huge hit. This is one of the most successful commercially like uh, profitable movies in the history of South African cinema. It made money all over the world. It was exported all over the world. It was a huge hit and I had never watched it before, but now that I have, I completely understand why it was so big uh, as a hit. It's, it's a very charming light comedy of the kind of comedy that travels well. It's not, you know, a dialogue-driven comedy. It's a broad, physical comedy following this character named Key uh, from this tribe of Bushmen in this uh, in the African desert going about their daily lives until one day he finds this Coke bottle. It's been dropped out of a low-flying plane by a littering pilot. And this bottle has all these different uses for the tribe. They can use it as an instrument. It can hold things. They use it to pound food or to break up wood, but it creates jealousy and anger in the tribe for the first time ever. Supposedly this tribe has lived peacefully for centuries, but the, uh, you know, just immediately adding this Coke bottle to the mix, uh, you know, creates chaos. And if you want to see that as a metaphor for the West's corrupting and destructive influence in Africa, who am I to stop you from doing that? So Key decides the only way to restore his tribe to order is to walk to the end of the world and throw the Coke bottle back to the gods. So he sets out across Africa on this hike, and along the way he meets all these other characters, and all their lives start to intersect. There's a bumbling biologist, there's a school teacher. And there's a group of rebels who are on the run from the government after an unsuccessful assassination attempt of the president. 
And you might think that assassinations, men blowing helicopters out of the sky with bazookas, these are not laughing matters. Uh, but they are in the, the gods must be crazy. And honestly, that was one of the things I liked about the movie. The jokes in the movie, a lot of them, they're not in, let's say, bad taste. They're definitely a wee bit inappropriate. Uh, but its main character has never seen any of so-called, I put this in a very heavy air quotes, civilized society. And I like the way that the movie kind of renders all of that world completely foolish and absurd. And it's fascinating to see this tribe and the way they live. And then it's even more fascinating to see, you know, this sort of Western culture through their eyes. And then the movie is just really funny. It has a lot of great gags. I was laughing out loud uh, repeatedly. There's a long sequence where the biologist character is driving a, a, a Jeep and he can't get it to stop. And he keeps coming to these gates in the road that he has to keep opening. So he has to try to get out of the jeep open the gate without the thing stop it's it's, uh, describing it doesn't do justice to it but it's really really funny so yeah that's the gods must be crazy i really i enjoyed it it is available for rent i watched it uh, on amazon okay well my next pick is is one i kind of i really wanted to talk about this uh, or talk about something that was not about that did not portray africa through the lens of a conflict Mm -hmm. and I've forgotten that this show even existed, but it's one that's available on HBO Go for streaming. And it is it is one of those forgotten HBO series. It is the number one ladies detective agency. It was a joint BBC and HBO venture. It ran for seven episodes uh, before basically like one feature length pilot and then a six episode season before HBO decided to pass on it. It's based on Alexander McCall Smith's ongoing series of novels about precious Ramotswe, who is uh, a woman from Botswana who starts her own private investigative service in uh, Haberone, which is the capital. And as she notes, it is the only ladies detective agency and therefore definitely the best. Um, And she takes on cases that range from insurance fraud to ivory smuggling to missing relatives and cheating husbands. And uh, Richard Curtis and Anthony Minghella adapted the books to TV, um, and they co-directed the feature-length first episode. And Jill Scott plays Precious Ramotswe, and Anika Noni-Rose plays her stalwart secretary and eventual assistant detective Grace Makutsi. And in that first episode, you can also see some familiar faces, including Colin Salmon, uh, David Oyelowo, and Idris Elba as actually a menacing local crime lord. (laughs) Um, but the, the, as much as the show does on occasion touch on these darker themes, it is very much about, it's very much about the fact that it's, it's, it's set in Botswana and was shot on location in Botswana. And Botswana is a country that has had like political stability and is actually kind of has like a very growing, a quickly growing economy and is like, it's a stable place, you know, that uh, it's about the charm of this, uh, this character who moves from like a village to the big city and the big city is even like pretty slow moving and Mm. pretty, you know, pretty easygoing. And I I think there's a little bit, um, the, 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 the charm that the creators clearly find in these characters and their and, and and in kind of like the simplicity of their way of life, I think verges on paternalistic sometimes, 
But I do think that like Miss Fisher's murder mysteries, which I have talked about before, uh, that that this series feels like it it does something kind of quietly radical in reclaiming the kind of traditional and sometimes stodgy form of the detective series, the kind of PBS detective series, you know, uh, it, it, for this very specific setting and for a female character and for kind of for issues that are often domestic and to have this set up as a detective story where she approaches crimes that are sometimes like they keep, there's a running joke about that. They'll find your missing cow, but that, uh, that those are kind of, they are local crimes that she solves. And uh, it, it's extremely charming. And Jill Scott is very charming in this role as a kind of, as a woman who is inventing this career for herself uh, having come into an inheritance that has allowed her this freedom. And as a woman who has like an unfortunate past that she's trying to leave behind and has this very adorable flirtation with the local mechanic. Uh, who, uh, who, and I, I think it's, it's very comfort foody, but in a way and through a lens that I don't think you get to see very often at all. You know, it is shot in Botswana and Botswana looks gorgeous. And, uh, and it's, it can't help but be steeped in local details because of that. So uh, that's a series that if you've ever seen it, wondered what that was scrolling past on HBO, on your HBO Go. Uh, or it, HBO Now. Or HBO Now. It, was, uh, it wasn't really around long enough to build up much of a following. One so season. Yeah, so I don't think people kind of ever really caught on to it. But it is like very warm and very sweet and charming. And it's got some very nice performances. That is the number one ladies detective agency. It is on your HBO devices. That's a good pick. That's a, that's one I haven't seen myself. I've got to catch up with it on HBO. Go now. Now go. <laughs> All right. My second pick, unfortunately, <laughs> I suppose, another movie about violent conflict in Africa. Um, but certainly the polar opposite of the gods must be crazy in terms of style and tone and certainly humor. And this is a movie that has a fabulous reputation that I also had never seen. And I'm, I'm glad I was finally able to watch it. And that's the battle of Algiers directed by Hilo Ponticorvo. And it's available now on Hulu from the criterion collection. It's from 1966. And it's about the events that occurred about a decade earlier in what was then French Algeria, as the locals were fighting for their independence and the film follows the members of the FLN, the National Liberation Front, and also the members of the French paratroopers who are brought in to sort of quell their rebellion. And honestly, watching it, the thing that I was reminded of more than anything else, Allison, I don't know if you've seen this movie. I have not. The thing that it reminded me of, honestly, was The Wire, in that it looks, I thought, very fairly, very even-handedly at both sides of a, of a conflict. You watch the freedom fighters as they are sneaking bombs into these French cafes to create unrest. And then you watch as the French are essentially torturing captive members of the FLN for information. And it did kind of remind me of the way David Simon was using like Baltimore, uh, like kind of systemically, right? And not necessarily pointing fingers at any one side and trying to blame anyone and, and instead trying to understand this conflict and the combatants on both sides and trying to sort of see the bigger picture. And I felt like as effectively as The Wire does that for Baltimore and the drug war, I felt like the Battle of Algiers does that for this conflict from now 50 years ago, I guess. Uh, I, I I do think that the movie could be 
it a bit stronger stronger if it had maybe a cast of I don't know the, the characters because it is so focused on kind of the macro and, and the the struggle on both sides that it doesn't have a, a lot of strong characters and I, certainly that's a deliberate choice but I felt like I would have I don't know cared even more deeply I would have been caught up in it even more if there had been just a little bit more or more characters to really latch onto in the film. But it's still, nonetheless, I mean, there are sequences in this movie that are just incredible, it's including those sequences where the the rebels, the FLN, are sneaking these bombs through these checkpoints. Uh, it is, I mean, as intense as this kind of a movie can get, the suspense, the tension, and, I mean, putting you into the shoes of these characters who are, you know, bringing these weapons and knowing what they're doing and, you know, bringing a bomb into a place and then looking at the people in it. I mean, it is, it's, it's very powerful, very chilling, very intense stuff. So another movie I'm really, really glad that I was able to catch up with. It's another movie I would recommend people check out. That is the battle of Algiers. It is available now on Hulu. Okay. Allison, what time is it on the show? Matt and Allison's. Totally concise. Look, you actually know it now. Come on, keep going. And completely succinct. Succinct. New release roundup. There you go. See? It wasn't so hard. It only took four or five months. Podcast is over now. Yeah, now we can shut it down. It was nice knowing you guys. So this is supposed to be the time of year, Allison, when good movies are coming out. And yet, and yet, we are recording this uh, on Sunday afternoon in what is... One of, I would think, has to be historically one of the worst weekends for opening, like in terms of box office. Hearts were breaking. Yeah. Not, I mean, financially for sure. Yes. Tons of movies huge, that were huge flops and certainly cre- creatively, c- critically, uh, not successes either. Very briefly here. You said, though, you wanted to say something about The Last Witch Hunter, which I is did. the new Vin Diesel movie. I did. As a smile spreads across <laughs> your face, the likes of which I've not seen for the last hour did you've been you sitting here. Did you see this movie? I haven't. Oh, no, okay. someone else said Screen Crush. Uh, reviewed it, so I haven't seen it. I mean, it is a terrible movie, but it is very enjoyable, but the quality about it that I really appreciated Mm -hmm. is that it is like such an open like Vin Diesel vanity project Mm. in every way. Like the character is written to basically be the toughest, most badass, with the coolest department, who's immortal. He has a flaming sword, which I saw is pretty cool, actually. Yes, has a flaming sword. Like it just... And it's all D and D kind of inspired. And so Vin Diesel someone, famously loves, loves Dungeons D&D. and Dragons. Dungeons so, like, and Dragons. Yeah, you know, he's like he's a level fourteen warlock, and things like <laughs> elemental magic is neutral. But and and he starts off with like this hilarious like Viking kind of look. I guess it's supposed to be the Middle Ages, but he's got like a he's bald, but he has he, a big beard, he, right? Big beard, and he has hair on top. Oh, he does. Yes, so it's like an undercut, like a historical undercut, I guess. I don't. It, it's, it's, a, it's a documentary, basically. It is basically what you're is just exactly what Vin Diesel's life is like when he's not in the Fast and the Furious <laughs> movies. But I don't. I mean, like, it is enjoyable. Like, but it's just. It's, Are you it's, recommending it's, this movie? Well, I mean, it's the kind of movie that you will like. Really, you'll totally watch when it's on streaming. Okay. And, you know, it is. Don't seek it out, but when you see it yeah. on TNT, like it, it, it is like it feels like a bad version of Constantine, which was already not a perfect Wasn't movie. Constantine, the bad version of Constantine. No, it's a worse version of Constantine. Okay. Wow. Yeah, but. I, I have to say, like, it's ridiculous, and I, I had a good time watching it in, okay. in that way of also when you're like, it's so funny that some actors, all they want to do is, like, 
they want to you know make romantic comedies or do indies or like do the theater and Vin Diesel when his he's passion not, is when flaming swords in, and yes, D&D he's not in an, a, a franchise that involves him jumping cars between skyscrapers he's yeah. like I want to be like an immortal flaming sword wielding guy who fights the witch queen I mean makes perfect sense to me all right so a, a mild recommendation it sounds I, if like you want to call it that all sure. right well that was this weekend now next week coming up as we're recording this We've both seen one of the, I guess it's really the only big release. It is Our Brand is Crisis, which is the new David Gordon Green film. And it has Sandra Bullock and Billy Bob Thornton and Anthony Mackie. Actually, has a very strong cast, loosely based on a documentary, Rachel Boynton's documentary of the same name, about these political strategists who go to South America to, to sort of make money down there. Uh, we both saw it, I think, at Toronto. Yes. What did you think of this one? I liked it, though I feel like it does this has the same kind of issue that I've had with uh, like David Gordon Green's other recent movies, which is I feel like I don't get where it's aiming for tonally exactly. Mm. I also hated the ending. The ending is horrible. It makes the rest of the movie worse, but like kind of yes, (laughs) it's the sort of movie that you could you would like. I I liked it too. Okay, yes, you know I'd give it like a six out of ten. It's got a very fun Sandra Bullock performance. Great Sandra Bullock and great Billy Bob Thornton, exactly. and they're great together. They are great together. They are so wonderful together that you kind of wish they were in a better movie or in a different movie where right. they could just kind of go at it the whole movie. The whole time. Because uh, yeah. Billy Bob Thornton's role is kind of small. It's, yeah, I wished it was bigger. And I think I, I really like the way this is a movie about – like the show Unreal, which I'm a big fan of. Yes. It is a movie about – being almost like addicted to how good you are at your terrible soul sucking job, right? That you sort of hate, and there's a lot of self loathing you know involved, terrible, but yes. that you're good at it and you love being good at it, right? And you kind of can't escape it, exactly, because Sandra Bullock's character is very much like the main character in Unreal. She sort of is so good at this, but she's out of the game, but she can't resist getting drawn back in, and she has this rivalry with Billy Bob Thornton's character, who's kind of like the James Carville uh, yes. of, of this story. And they just are so wonderful sniping at each other that to me, it was like the rest of the movie is not great. I just, I wanted a movie about these two despicable people who like love, are to, so hate great, each other. love to hate each other. I mean, I was getting like Tracy Hepburn flashbacks yes. here. They're so, because they're, they're sort of flirting with each other in this way. That's like, they just hate each other. Right. They want to have try, hate sex with each other. Actively to destroy each other. Yes. But they also totally like, like they, they enjoy it yeah. and they do kind of, need each other but you're absolutely right the ending is almost so bad that you regret saying that you like the rest of it because it is just tonally it's so off from the rest of the movie that it's it's honestly it's a little bit embarrassing yes but that's the last like five ten minutes and the rest of the movie is your eyes when it starts to it seems envision the better ending as it's happening (laughs) all around you just think of it focus on that and 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 enjoy the uh, the Sandra Bullock and Billy Bob Thornton performances which are really good. All right. Let's move on to Behind the Eight Ball now where we run down three new titles on streaming. We give you some listener recommendations that you guys have so uh, kindly sent into us at our email address svu at filmspottingsvu.com and we give you one film chosen blindly by number from our my lists. Allison, I'm going to let you choose. Do you want to go first? Or do you want me to go first? Why don't you go first? All right, I will. All right. Well, why don't you tell us about three new releases? All right. First up, if you aren't completely sick of Back to the Future Madness now, thanks to last week's Future Day celebration, that was the day when Marty McFly and Doc Brown traveled to 2015 and Back to the Future Part 2. And I'm sure you are all sick of it at this point. But if you're not, if you're not, you can watch the entire Back to the Future series right now on Amazon Prime. I am of the opinion that the first film is a masterpiece and the second and third films are both 
good sequels, and I do think that somewhat shoddy future predictions notwithstanding, that that second movie is kind of interesting in the way that it is about the difficulties of making a sequel to a popular film. So Back to the Future, all three films available now on Amazon Prime. Next up, over on Hulu, there's a bunch of new films that have been added from the Library of American International Pictures, the independent production company of the 50s, 60s, and 70s, behind many of the biggest exploitation films of the period. I'm going to recommend Boxcar Bertha, which was made in 1972 as part of that period's boom of cheap gangster movies that started a few years earlier in the wake of Bonnie and Clyde's success. This movie stars Barbara Hershey and David Carradine. It is notable because it is the second film by a very famous filmmaker, Allison, that would be Martin Scorsese. Uh, it's a film I have only seen one time. I don't have very strong memories of it of as being particularly fantastic. But it is interesting, I think, that it is the second Scorsese film. He had made his, his student film that got turned into a sort of a full film after that. But I think the fact that it's such an early film by him certainly makes it worth a look. That's Boxcar Bertha. That's available now on Hulu. And finally, on Netflix, we have the Walt Disney Animation Studios Short Film Collection. This short film collection includes recent shorts that have played in front of Disney films. It's got Frozen Fever, Tangled Ever After, Feast, which I really enjoyed and found delightful, Paper Man, another good one, and Get a Horse! Exclamation point, which is the new Mickey Mouse short that was done in the style of old black and white cartoons. And I think even has Walt Disney's voice doing Mickey Mouse from previous recordings. This is not – they didn't un- – <laughs> they didn't, didn't thaw him head. out. Yeah, yeah, they didn't thaw out his head to record <laughs> the voice work. I think it's archival voice work by Walt Disney. So that's the Walt Disney Animation Studios short film collection available on Netflix. All right. Two listener recommendations. Our first comes from Ross in New York, New York. He says, hey, Matt and Allison, I love the podcast and wanted to recommend some movies that people should catch up with if they, for some reason, haven't seen them yet. Since Paul Thomas Anderson's new film premiered on Mubi, it may be a great time to check back in on Boogie Nights, which is new to Netflix, and Magnolia, now on HBO Now. Both films expertly show why Paul Thomas Anderson is one of the best working filmmakers in Hollywood. They have strong ensemble casts that include such PTA favorites as John C. Riley, Julianne Moore, William H. Macy, and, of course, the late, great Philip Seymour Hoffman. Huge fan of the show and enjoy the film recommendations from both you guys and from fellow listeners. Keep up the great work. That was from Ross in New York, New York, who's a fellow Mets fan. So thank you, Ross. Uh, we've also got an email here from Josh in Portland, Oregon. Josh has a long email here with several recommendations. Let's try to get through as many as we can very quickly. He says, I am currently knee-deep in the middle of Doctoberfest, my annual attempt to watch as many documentaries as possible during the month of October. And it was an utter delight that you guys reviewed one of my favorite films of the year so far, Iris. At the halfway point this month, I have seen 10 documentaries, so please allow me to share some of my favorites available on streaming. Samsara, this absolutely beautiful documentary from Ron Frick, features stunning camera work as it attempts to capture the natural beauty of this planet and the creatures that inhabit it, mainly humans. It's like a National Geographic magazine come to life that's available on Netflix. Buck. One of my favorite documentaries of this decade, this film from Cindy Meal, follows the life of Buck Branneman, the real-life horse whisperer. What's remarkable about Buck is his absolute zen approach to life, which becomes even more poignant the more his past is explored. And that's available on Netflix. And we've also got Woodstock, Three Days of Peace and Music, and Tig, 
Woodstock is available on Amazon Rental, and Tig, the documentary about the comedian, is available on Netflix. Hope some of these are useful, and of course, thank you for the show. That's from Josh in Portland, Oregon. Thank you, Josh. All right, one from your my list. You gave me number nine, and right now on my list, number nine is Rosewater. Rosewater. I'll read you the plot description. While in Iran covering the 2009 elections, journalist Maziar Bahari is detained and brutally interrogated after Iranian forces accuse him of spying. Of course, directed by John Stewart, formerly of The Daily Show, starring Gael Garcia Bernal. I never saw this movie, Alice, and I missed it. Um, and so that's why it's fairly high on my my list. Did you see it? I did see it. Did you like it? I liked it okay. All right. Yeah. You, you got more excited about The Last Witch Hunter than you did about Rosewater. Well, its so. aims were different. Uh, I guess that's probably true. So that will – I guess that's going to keep it on number nine on my, my list. I'm not going to bump it up after that tepid re- recommendation from Allison. Allison, are you ready to do your countdown here? I'm ready. All right. Let's start with three new releases. Okay. First up is a movie that is new to Netflix. It is called Results, and it is the latest film from writer and director Andrew Bujalski, who is probably best known for his part in the mumblecore movement with movies like Mutual Appreciation and Funny Ha Ha. Uh, this is a bigger movie with a famous cast, including Guy Pierce, Kobe Smulders, Kevin Corrigan, Giovanni Ribisi, and uh, Anthony Michael Hall. And it is set in Austin, where Kevin Corrigan plays this recently divorced guy who's just come into a lot of money and is basically sitting by himself in this giant McMansion trying to figure out what to do with his life. And uh, Guy Pierce and Kobe Smulders play a gym owner and gym trainer who kind of get involved with his life. This is a romantic comedy, but one of the great pleasures of it is the ways in which it takes a little while to even realize that or to realize who who is in the romance. <laughs> and I think that, like all of Bujalski's movies, its rhythms are very kind of like unconventional and it still has this great warmth and empathy for characters who are very imperfect Uh, i like this movie a lot and it is a kind of stealthy crowd pleaser uh, results that is on netflix new to amazon prime is while we're young which is the other noah baumbach movie this year uh, along with mistress america i prefer this one it happens to also be the one that has like been his biggest box office success because i think it stars ben stiller and naomi watts adam driver and amanda Seyfried. i will say this a lot of people don't like the turn it takes towards the end when it becomes sort of a movie about documentary ethics I love the turn it takes in the end, and I love that it links documentary ethics to a generational divide. That is on Amazon Prime. And finally, new to Hulu subscription is The Hunger Games Mockingjay Part 1. I recommend this less because I think this is a great movie, because I don't think it's that great. I would say I prefer Catching Fire, which is also streaming on Hulu subscription. But because I wanted to point out that it is on Hulu courtesy of a giant deal that the mm. service has made with Epix that has netted the service a bunch of bigger movies uh, that used to be on Netflix through Netflix's right. deal with Epix, but are now on Hulu's subscription side. There are way too many for me to point out, but if you if you have a Hulu subscription and you haven't looked on the movie part for a while... Their movie section has improved vastly, yes, vastly, actually. In fact, I think they're really rivaling Netflix right now. That's right. 
And I, you know, it, they made a serious investment in, mm. in these movies. Um, you'll find some other big movies that you may or probably may not want to watch, like Transformers Age of Extinction. Mm, speak for yourself. Star Trek Into Darkness, you know, uh, and Catching Fire, the aforementioned Catching Fire, which I like a lot. But uh, if you, if there are like big blockbusters that you wanted to catch up on, the chances right. are much more now that they will be on Hulu than on Netflix. I don't know that we've also mentioned the fact that Hulu now has that tier that you don't right. have to watch commercials. So if the commercial aspect of Hulu has been bothering you, you pay four extra bucks a month and you can watch every, almost everything without commercials. There's a few TV shows where you have to watch a commercial at the beginning and the ending, but then the actual body of the show is without commercial interruption. We have upgraded here at our house. And it's magical. It is. It's pretty, I don't know, magical, but it is pretty good, actually. It's, it's, it's a pretty, I mean, if you watch a lot of Hulu and you watch a lot of TV on Hulu particularly, it's a pretty awesome thing to now have no commercials at all. Yeah, there's also a kind of Showtime subscription tier. That's an extra thing That's we haven't bought. That's an extra thing yes. that I have not bought either, but that is something that... It's sort of like you can add the equivalent of HBO Go right, to your, your Hulu subscription with, with Showtime. Showtime. Yeah. But that's an extra charge that I have not I have not yet. done that either, but another thing. Another thing to be also, aware of. Yes, yeah. and that also brings a bunch of other movies. So... Hulu stepping up its game. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. After we were talking about how Netflix is not caring about movies, Hulu is, uh, is coming along. All right. How about two listener recommendations? All right. Well, first up, we have one from David who writes, I watched Duke of Burgundy tonight, mainly because of the strong recommendation from Adam Kempinar over at that other franchise. As the film started, I noticed this credit for perfume. Surely this has to be a first in film history. And it came right after the credit for dresses and lingerie. Up to that point, I thought the opening credits looked pretty B-movie rinky-dink. Changed my mind at the perfume credit. I suppose other people have recommended this film. How could they not? The titles, the title character is never mentioned. I'm guessing it is a butterfly. Beyond that, I generally give films 10 minutes to catch me. If not, I am gone. This movie didn't catch me in the first 10 minutes, but I could see it was obviously beautifully made, so I kept on. It's kinky, but a special kind of sweet, mild, artful kinky. The characters are lovingly treated. I appreciated that. It is a film about love, the labors of love, and also interesting that the entire town seems to be filled with insect-obsessed women, including at least one mannequin woman. They all do seem to love leather boots. It's a dark comedy, yes, a satire, yes, but it is also a very beautiful film, breathtaking at times, and so loving towards its two fantastic female female leads and that is now streaming on netflix and that is a film we are both big fans of mm -hmm. as well so thank you for that recommendation david and then we got another recommendation from cindy in belchertown massachusetts who writes i was delighted to hear you discuss a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence in your recent episode i know you mentioned it during this segment but i thought it was a good opportunity to further highlight you the living which is currently streaming on Fandor as a listener recommendation. I've only recently discovered the films of Roy Anderson, and I share Allison's appreciation of his living trilogy, especially You the Living, which is my favorite of the three. It's an absurd yet warm look at the human condition. Roger Ebert's review notes that it's in sympathy with his characters. It shares their sor sorrows. It shares their sorrow, yet it is amused that each thinks his suffering is unique. I'd add that it also keenly observes that this suffering is largely brought on by ourselves. You, the living, left me with a profound love for humanity, not despite, but because of our shared flaws and foibles. I hope more listeners are able to check it out. I hope more listeners are able to check it out. Uh, thank you for that, Cindy. I, as I've mentioned, I'm a, an enormous fan of You, the Living, and I didn't know it was streaming on Fandor, so I'm excited to go take a look at it again myself, and I would really suggest, if you have Fandor, taking a look at it. It's pretty wonderful. 
Okay, and one film chosen blindly by number from your my list. You gave me number 59, which is not a movie. It is a television miniseries mm. called Appropriate Adults. Um, here is a description from Netflix. It's not very helpful. The routine life of Gloucester woman Janet Leach is dramatically transformed when she's asked by police to sit as an appropriate adult. Um, to expound on that, this is based on the real story of a serial killer named Fred West and his wife, Rosemary. Um, and it's about after the West were arrested um, and they were put on trial or going to be put on trial. Dominic West and I think Monica Dolan are the characters. And Emily Watson is the woman who's brought in to basically serve as a court appointed uh, advisor like uh, a kind of legal guardian for him to make sure, because they really wanted to make sure that Fred West, I guess, understood everything that was happening in the trial. So it's about that relationship. That's all I know. I've heard good things about it. It was a, it was a British series that ended up here on Sundance channel and Julian Gerald was the director. So, you know, one of those ones that's been sitting on there a while and I have no doubt I will enjoy when I finally get around to it, but it's been, it's down there on the list. Okay, well, it's time to discuss our listeners' choice options for our next episode, and we've got a bit of a theme this time. All of our options are about the world of filmmaking. We have a TV show, and we have two films all about the world of filmmaking. The first one is a TV show. It is called Project Greenlight. It is currently airing on HBO, and you can watch it on either HBO Go or on HBO Now. This is currently the fourth season of the series, but the first in about a decade. This is the show, of course, where a aspiring filmmaker is given the opportunity to make their first movie, and it's a reality show about the process, the behind-the-scenes process. And this is the first season that's aired in a long time of Project Greenlight, and it's gotten quite a bit of attention. It's been controversial for some of the things Matt Damon has said, for some of the choices that the, the director this time, Jason Mann, uh, has made. And neither Allison nor I have started watching it yet, but we, we're sort of curious to watch it. And uh, you were saying you think that we might even be able to watch the film as well, which would be interesting. We might, yeah. Which I think is called The Leisure Class. It is. So, that, so we can't guarantee the film, but if we can, that would be part of it as well. So Project Greenlight, season four, the one that's currently airing on HBO, HBO Go, and HBO Now, uh, and hopefully the film as well. That would be option number one, Project Greenlight. Okay, option number two is a film from 1987 that is one that I've been really, I haven't seen, and I'm really looking forward to a chance to watch it and maybe talk about it on the podcast. It is Hollywood Shuffle. This is the film uh, produced, directed, co-written by, and starring Robert Townsend as a man named Bobby Taylor who is trying to become a successful actor but keeps kind of being told he's not black enough or he's not the right type and that there are only really a certain amount of of roles for black actors and that they're very narrow in scope and that they're they keep looking for an Eddie Murphy type he keeps running into and uh, this is a movie that I think I don't like it, it didn't get as much attention I think at the time or it, you know it was well received at the time uh, but that I keep hearing people re referring to in terms of like being very 
sharply ahead of its time in terms of the conversations that we have now about race and Hollywood's relationship with race. And, uh, you know, Robert Townsend is one of those people who's been kind of around making movies and acting, but uh, I, I think maybe has never gotten the due that some people feel like he deserves. So uh, I am very inter- interested in watching this one. That is Hollywood Shuffle, and it is available for rent. All right, and our third option is a film entitled Irma Vep, which is currently streaming on Amazon Prime. This is the 1996 film from Olivier Assayas. I will read you the plot description. When a director in decline decides to remake Louis Foulade's silent serial Les Vampires, he casts a Hong Kong action heroine who does not speak any French. On the chaotic set, she finds petty intrigues, clashing egos, and a wardrobe mistress with a crush on her. I love Olivier Assayas' films. I, 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 I have like, I want to say I've never seen it, but I've sort of seen it. When I worked at Kim's Video, I watched it on the TV at Kim's Video, but I don't think that really fully counts. I would like to uh, watch it again and give it my full attention when I'm not ringing up customers. So, uh, Allison, have you seen this one? I have. It's been a long time, though. Okay. Um, uh, it, one of uh, Asayas' uh, most beloved films, obviously, and it certainly it's one of the highest regarded films about movie making. Uh, yeah, Maggie Chung in Maggie Chung. great role, uh, yeah. who they ended up married for a while. Her and Asayas, yes. yes. So it's one that I, you know, like we both would like to rewatch, and another one about the world of movies that would probably uh, lead to some stimulating discussion. So that's option number three, Irma Vep, that is streaming right now on Amazon Prime. Okay, well, which of these choices should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can always vote by sending your pick to SVU at Filmspotting SVU, or even easier, you can just enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at FilmspottingSVU.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, November 2nd at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner of the poll on Twitter at our Twitter account, which is at FilmSpottingSVU. And you'll have all that week to watch the film. And then you can join us for our conversation on the next week's episode, which will come out around Tuesday, November 10th. FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The FilmSpotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We will be back in two weeks with more movie and perhaps some TV recommendations, along with the review, either movie or TV, that you guys pick. But in the meantime, you can follow us on Twitter, at Allison Wilmore and at Matt Singer. And you can follow the show at FilmSpottingSVU. That's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share lots more streaming suggestions from you guys, from ourselves. And, uh, hey, if you haven't done it, why not leave us a review on iTunes? Give us five stars. Leave us a positive review. It really helps us uh, algorithmically reach new listeners. Not all algorithms are bad. Some of them are good. And this one, when they help us, they're very good. So please leave us a review on uh, iTunes if you have a chance. We really appreciate it. For Film Spotting SVU, I am Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 